People today are hyper-connected and profoundly lonely. Are we in a crisis of friendship? And do the ancient church fathers say anything remotely relevant to friendship in the 21st century? Join us today as we answer those questions and more with Mike Aquilina, author of Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. I'm Father Dave Pavonkin. I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka. I'm president of Franciscan University of Steubenville, and we're talking today about friendship and the fathers. I'm joined by our panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology in the New Evangelization here at Franciscan University. And we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Mike Aquilina. Mike is the executive vice president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and a contributing editor for Angelus News. He is also an editor, podcast host, author of over 50, although we're talking maybe 70 books, yeah. but after a couple of dozen, it's just <laughs> really, uh, including Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized, which we are discussing today. Welcome, Mike. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Father Dave. Uh, great <laughs> blessing. Um, we'll go through every book later, but, but just to start with, the, um, I, I just was, I loved, I loved this book, enjoyed it very much. Uh, friendship and why did you write this? What was kind of moving in your heart that said, "Okay, this is a good good idea to create a book on this"? Well, uh, fr friendship is an issue uh, that of great personal interest for me, but also I think it's of universal interest. Mm. Uh, I had no plans to write a book on friendship. On I, friendship, I had okay. No, no plans to write a book on friendship, and I was giving a paper uh, at a conference on the family at Notre Dame University, and. After I gave the paper, I was walking back to my seat, and um, Pat Fagan from um, Catholic University of America just grabbed my shoulder, and he just said to me, you need to write a book on the fathers and friendship. And I said, Pat, there's not <laughs> enough material. And so I sat down in my seat, and I'm thinking, what is the material? So I started writing out a list of everything I could think of in the fathers on friendship, and it was a pretty substantial list, and, and this started to intrigue me. Yeah, and then I got back to my hotel room, and I started Googling a little bit, you know, and looking at, at different works of the fathers, and the list was substantial. By the time I got home, I was ready to write a proposal. Isn't that something? <laughs> Isn't that something? So you were surprised. So it came out of friendship, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it, yes, I was surprised by the amount of material I was able to pull together. We live in a world, is, and you talk about this, that's kind of a crisis of friendship. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you make this distinction between what we're going through now and what the Church Fathers went through, and, and what did you come to understand more deeply about the nature of friendship? Well, as you said, I think there is a, a crisis of friendship right now. I think, uh, I think that's, been, that's been demonstrated. I, I mentioned in, in the book that there's, there was a longitudinal study done by the University of Arizona and Duke University uh, psychology departments. They were looking at, um, at uh, what they called social isolation. And, uh, and they saw a real decline, a sharp decline, in the number of friendships Americans claimed to have, right? Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the study, most people were saying, I have three close friends, three people I can call confidants, three people I can open my heart to. 20 years into the study, that 
had precipitously fallen. And a quarter of the people were saying, I have no friends at all. Yeah. No one I can, I can open up to. No one. And so this is a real crisis. And, and uh, you know, the United Kingdom just recognized it as a medical problem. Right. Because the yeah. general practitioners are saying that you need a friend. Yes, yeah, and so something? they're prescribing yeah, yeah, friendship yeah, 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 yeah. now. This is well, a, this I think should convict Christians. Right. Well, it's not only a medical problem; it's a spiritual malady. Yes. I think it was Mother Teresa who said the most impoverishing thing about the modern age is loneliness. Yes, and that certainly implies an absence of of friendship. Yes, yes, I think it's epidemic right now. Yeah, you know, the the early Christians had to deal with plagues; they had to deal with famines. This is the real plague today. Right. It's loneliness. The real famine is for friendship. Yeah, what somebody called bowling alone. Yes. What an oxymoron. <laughs> I mean, I hate bowling anyway. <laughs> it's just, slightly I more bearable if it's you do it with, for with me. friends. <laughs> I just wanted gutter. to see you with bowling shoes. Uh, <laughs> so you, you, you have this historical narrative arc mm -hmm. that takes us from Irenaeus in the second century all the way to Boethius, Rabanus Maris and others too, and it's like, wow, at every period, in every place, they recognize the importance of friendship, but they distinguish true friends from false friends. Yes. But they never identify what we would call virtual friends. Yeah. You know, three yeah. friends, two friends, well, I've got 900 friends on Facebook, none of whom are real friends. <laughs> yeah. and, and so the, uh, the illusion of friendship that the social media created and sustains, I think in some ways, it's, it's worse than fast food as far as your own hygiene and mm. health. Uh, but at the same time, it's a, it's a wake up call because you not only link it to the social, the psychological, the spiritual needs, you also link it to the church's mission. Yes. I mean, how did the church evangelize in the first four or five centuries? Well, mostly through the internet, Twitter, yeah. Facebook, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. or was it TV? No, yeah. it was radio, it was none of the above. Well, it wasn't just the martyrs because once that happens, they're not evangelizing, at least on earth. So, you know, you do the calculus and you realize it really was friendship. Yes, yes. Pre-Constantinian, you know, you had to be really prudent yes. because you could die if you came out of the closet yeah. as a Christian. Yes. But then the post-Constantinian, you had to also reassess how friendships are because now suddenly you can get ahead by being right. a Christian yes. and appearing to be a friend. It's like this is unmapped territory. Yeah. You know, I, I feel as though you were looking for India and you came across a new world uh -huh. that has gone largely unrecognized. So kudos to Pat Fagan. Scott, if you continue uh, much, much longer, uh, you'll shut down the show. <laughs> there won't be anything more to say. Yeah. Uh, could I uh, enter a demural? Uh, I do agree with you that, that these people knew nothing about virtual reality, the internet. But when you think of the correspondence, say, yes. between Augustine and Paulinus of Nola, they never laid eyes right. on one another. And that was, and yet they were great friends. And that was an issue in their correspondence. Yeah, how you know, does they, that work? Right, right, they, right. they talked about whether it's possible uh, uh, to have a friendship if you've never shared physical presence. Right. And Augustine tended to believe that you couldn't re right. have a real right. friendship, right. Right. Yeah. and yet he had to acknowledge this bond of affection, yeah. interest, and trust that he had with Paulinus on the other side of the ocean. Right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so, so he, he uh, they, they talk about this, right. And, right. And, uh, and, and it's, it's fascinating because I think that that really is the first time in history where you find um, 
you find people discussing this issue of the possibility of uh, a virtual friendship. Yeah. And I'd say, yeah, they found that it was possible. Yeah, but I, I think my sympathies would, would go with Augustine, that there has to be some real presence. I, I need to see you. Yeah. Uh, I, it's just not enough to send you a, a letter. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's possible. Uh, it's more possible if you're a prodigy of friendship and a prodigy of communication as yeah. these two men were. Right. I mean, they were two of the greatest communicators of their time. Yeah. They, could, they could connect you know, right. through the paper and, and, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and their hearts. Yeah, the other it. would come alive. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. But language. it is the exception that proves the rule. It yeah, is. So you know, Very unless much. you're gifted in writing and really capable of communicating your heart. Yes. You know. It does, it does, is something that I think particularly with young people, much of their interaction is through electronics and, and it, it does challenge us to take another look at how that, I, I, I tend to agree with Augustine that to not see somebody, to not be with them, to not there, there's so much that takes place that is, is apart from the written word. But uh, Yes, I think uh, unless you have the physical presence, you can screen the call. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You can yeah, screen yeah. it out. Right. You can limit the, the amount of contact right. you have. What you, you present, right. Yeah. right. Uh, and, and then when you do decide to communicate, you've only got 146 <laughs> letters. I mean, is that possible? <laughs> yeah. A Twitter account. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, maybe there, Trump can do it, but I don't think real people can. And maybe, is that friendship? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe could we just take one step back? What is a friend? Oh. You, you spend quite a bit of time discussing the definition, you use Cicero's definition of friendship and then kind of critique that. So what is a friend? What's the definition that you want to use? I think what I've kind of landed on is that it's a reciprocal bond of affection, interest, and trust shared by two people. Okay. Okay, so you have affection, you have interest, you have trust. I think those three elements are, 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 are what you're going to find in any friendship. Yeah. That's what I came down to, boiled it down to, at the end of my research okay. here. But you know, it seems to me that interest, that middle term, is the catalyst. That's the, the yes. initial uh, experience. If you're not interested in something, then you're not likely to draw a, a, a friendship. I mean, like stamp collecting. Or, you know, you've got a girlfriend, so you talk to your best friend about her. Some third thing unites the two of you. That's yes. the cement. That's not love, that's friendship. Yes. And the first time you use the word friend in your book, uh, was the dedication to your wife, yes. Terry, whom you describe as your best friend. I, I, I have to challenge that. Okay. She's more than a friend. Yes. I mean, the, re the relationship you have with her is, I, I think, largely defined by eros, mm -hmm. you know, caritas. Mm -hmm. But it's not just friend. I mean, friendship is I, it. I mean, I'm lo we're looking at something together. Yes. But in love, I'm looking at you. Yeah. I, I would say she's more than a friend. She's a friend and more. Yeah. Because we do have such common interest, and we have since we first met. We had a common interest in literature, and we could talk about poetry. Mm -hmm. We could sit there reading poems to one another yeah. off the page and saying, wow. Yeah. So there was this common delight in, uh, in literature that we shared from the beginning. If, if I may, because that was a question I had when you were talking about the study from the University of Arizona and Duke. Uh, the question I had was, what about the wife? You know, yes. if, if people are saying they have no friends, where, or, or the spouse, it's not fair to say what, well, but with the spouse, where does that fit in? Yeah, I think it's possible to have a marriage without a deep friendship. Yeah, and, uh, it, it, you know, and, and I've, I think I've seen that, and people make it work as best they can. Yeah. But I, I do think that the two are profoundly compatible. That is marriage, eros, caritas, but also friendship, philia. You know, Aquinas describes marriage as the greatest friendship. Mm -hmm. It's certainly a lot more than that, but it's nothing less. But if it's not friendship, 
you can still get by the grace of the sacrament, the commitment to kids and that kind of thing. But I, I must admit that, that Cicero got us off on a decent start, but you know, correcting that and seeing that a friend is another self, you know, to draw from Aristotle, mm -hmm. that when they win, you celebrate, not just for them, but you feel as though you've won as well. And then what the incarnation does, it just takes it to the next level. You cite, you know, 3 John verse 15, where friendship practically becomes equivalent to the gospel. That's right. You know, and so I no longer call you servants there in John 15, 15. I now call you friends. You know, prior to the incarnation, friendship with God was absurd. It was impossible. Just poor metaphysics. Yeah. Now suddenly, yes. the equality is there. Yes. And you, you, you end up not only discovering the Lord as your friend, but then you're members of his body. And so friendship just becomes another word for Christian life. It's tremendous. Yeah, so, so can we agree that a, a defining feature of, of friendship is a sense of equality, a kind of parity? We're on the same page. I mean, it, it's hard for a yes. son to have a friendship with his father to some extent because he's the dad. He disciplines me <laughs> uh, and he knows more than I do. He constantly tells me that. Uh, but equality, I, I think, is the basis for an abiding friendship. I, I think that you bring about an equality or you can bring about an equality. Aristotle and Cicero both said that friendship was impossible between men who were unequal, right. all right? Yeah. Uh, different social classes, uh, different wealth, different status. You could not have a friendship if you differed in these ways. Uh, Cicero also said you could not have a friendship if, if you differed in any significant way in opinions about religion or politics. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that you were friends with people who were exactly like you. That right, was the ideal right, of friendship. Right. And frankly, that's what we're backing ourselves into sure, once sure, again sure. Absolutely. through social Absolutely. media. Yeah. It's very tribal, you know, and if somebody disagrees with me on anything, bam! Cancel Unfriend, that. yeah. Cancel. yeah. Unfriend, cancel. Yeah. You know, this is, this is yeah. the way we, we roll now. Mm -hmm. But I think when Jesus Christ, when God became incarnate, <laughs> what could be more unequal than God right. and man, right? right. right. And, yeah. and Aristotle even used that as an example. He said, a God could not have friendship with a man. And then Jesus arrives and he says, I have called you friends. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Talk about uh, upsetting the Aristotelian order there. Yeah. Uh, it's well, can I go to the defense of Aristotle for just a <laughs> moment, okay, before I concede yeah. the game? to Christ. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> Aristotle somewhere says that the difference between an educated man uh, and one who is not educated is pretty much the difference between man and a dog. Now, you don't have a friendship with a dog, but somebody who despises books, I don't know that I can forge a friendship with him or the books he loves are pornographic or mm. subversive. A guy who's fixated on transgenderism. Are, are he and I likely to become pals? Well, I think, I think we'll, we'll be open to friendship. You know, uh, our life is the imitation of Christ. You know, it's communion with Christ. And so we have to do the things that Christ does. And he was there at that table with those who would tax abandon him. Tax collectors and sinners. Yeah, uh, the tax collectors and sinners. And then at that and table where he said, I have called you friends with the guys who had been with him all the time. And yet they abandoned him. Yeah. They betrayed Yeah, because at the him. end of the day, he doesn't have any friends. Yes. I mean, he dies for his enemies, yes. not his friends. And, uh, and, and so I think we can imitate that in our openness to friendship. And I think that's what we see in the early fathers. As Scott pointed out, um, uh, the, the martyrs made an impression. Yeah. But that's not enough to bring you in. You had to be brought in, right. usually for by reason. way of 
the guy who was had the next stall in the, the 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 marketplace, and you know the people you dealt with in the forum, and and these the people who live next door to you. Yeah. You know that this is this is even if the guy next door is trying to kill you. Yes. Okay. And we see that happening. Right. Okay. And we are just getting into our topic today, so stay with us. Franciscan University presents. We'll be back in a moment. Now presenting other voices from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Friendship is important because it's a relationship where you are known as an individual and because you are in a relationship where you are known you can be called on to become a better version of yourself as an individual and to grow closer to God because of that. I truly believe that Christ is our, our first friend and our ultimate friend because he gives us everything that we need to not feel lonely or feel sad in our life and that's what a friend should be. Walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. You'll explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage in the Holy Land, Poland, France, Austria, Italy, and more destinations. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about friendship and the fathers. One of the stories you tell, the beginning is uh, two Christians and a pagan go to the beach. I thought it sounded like the beginning of a joke, so I was waiting for that. But, but then the end of it is, and, and three Christians come back. I thought it was a really beautiful story about friendship. So maybe just share that story and, and what you learned about that from that. Well, I think it's, it was the story of, uh, of many of the conversions that happened during that, this period in history. And when you think about it, during those first 250, 275 years, the church grew at a steady rate of 40% per decade. Yeah. Now, it's been a while since my parish grew yeah. at a rate yeah, yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. you know? So, uh, so, so I, you know, it caught my attention. Well, this is the story set down by a man named Marcus Minucius Felix, and he's a known figure in history, okay? He, he was a judge in Rome. He was a North African by origin, and, uh, and he was at the, the peak of his profession, really. He was respected, but he was a Christian, okay? Even in the time when yeah. Christianity was illegal, he was able to make a name for himself in his, in his profession. He actually converted to Christianity when he was at the peak of his okay. profession, but he was valued enough so that he stayed there. So he's out for a holiday, a long weekend, so to speak, with two of his colleagues, two other lawyers, and they're going to Ostia, the, the resort town, the, the port town near Rome. Uh, so they're, they're heading out there and, uh, and on their way there, uh, the, the one who's pagan, his name is Cecil, he blows a kiss to one of the, the, the statues of an yeah. Egyptian idol that's there in this, this Roman suburb. And, uh, and they're, they're going along, and the other guy, Octavius, says to him, you know, I can't keep silent. <laughs> yeah. You know, friends don't let friends worship dead things. You know, and he, and he speaks up, and he tells them, you know, what you're doing is, is, is badly mistaken. And then silence goes over the three of them. It's kind of this awkward so moment, yeah, sure, right? Sure. right? And you know it's silence because Marcus, who, who's telling the story, Minucius Felix, he starts describing everything around him. You know, he's describing the shoreline. He's describing the weather. He's describing the kids skipping yeah, stones. Yeah, look at this, right? Because they're looking at anything except each other. It's an awkward moment in, in their, their, their relationship. And so finally, the pagan says to the, the other two, you know, that offended me, I was hurt by that, I want a chance to defend my beliefs against yours 
we'll have a debate because that's what lawyers do. They argue, so they're doing what lawyers do. Um, and uh, and they're, 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 we'll do that, and he says, Marcus, you'll be the judge because that's what you do and we, we respect you. And so they begin this debate. Again, it's a lawyerly debate. It's, it's frank, but it's respectful, and, and it's articulate. And, um, and Cecil, the pagan, brings up what he considers the strongest arguments against Christianity. What's interesting to me is he's raising all the arguments that new atheists will bring up today as if their atheism <laughs> is, new. is new. That's right, that's right. But this is the late 100s when this argument has taken place. And it's interesting, Octavius carries the day, really. He responds to those arguments in, again, a respectful but frank way. Uh, it's a vigorous argument, and it never even gets to the point where, where Marcus has to render judgment, because, uh, because by the end of the debate, Cecil just surrenders. He says, right. I've decided you're right. And we can imagine then what follows is that he, he enters instruction and he's baptized eventually. Mm -hmm. But the three of them remain friends. And Marcus writes this book years later. It's kind of a novelistic mm -hmm. memoir in the way he tells it. But he writes it years later because the memory is so precious to him. Octavius has just died and it's going to be a public record. Cecil's still alive, mm -hmm. still a known quantity. So we can, we can really bank on the truth of this memoir. That's right. Oh. Yeah. One of the things I was struck by was just that the, the, the fact that they disagree, but it was a frank. And I think we live in a culture that we can't do that, is, is that individuals can't disagree and we're not going to be able to engage people unlike us because to disagree is to say that, that there's nothing in common, there's nothing that can bring us together. And that the story allows us to say, okay, maybe we need to broaden the people that we're spending time with. Maybe we need to be able to dialogue and to disagree without condemning the other person, respecting their value and their dignity. But I think that's a, an art that we've lost in our culture today. And they had fear then, as we have fear now, but today we're, we're, we're afraid about losing our social status, right. you know, our social currency. They had to fear death <laughs> uh, yeah. because Christ, the, the anti-Christian laws were on the books and there were, there were serious precedents for punishing the practice of Excellent. Christianity. Yeah. Uh, could I be troublesome uh, once again? Imagine. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see uh, this coming. You have this text. Uh, it's near the end of the book. It seems that Christians converted the world simply by befriending their next door neighbors and persevering in that friendship. And it struck me when I read that, yeah, Mike, it may seem like that to you, but it hardly seemed that way to the pagans because they were bent on the extermination of their neighbor. In fact, the Christian wasn't their neighbor. Christians weren't able to be neighbors. Yes. I mean, they were on the lamb. They were running from persecution. I mean, for them, the immediate need was survival. So how can a friendship uh, blossom? That's, that's why the example that, uh, that you cite, the guys go to the beach, they go as friends because after all, they like to swim, they like to sunbathe. And it's really a counterfeit friendship if the pagan can set aside his paganism, uh, uh, you know, for the duration of the friendship with the friend and not have him uh, destroyed. That's not being honest. Like the Muslim who says, you know, I'm going to set aside Islam and we're going to be pals. But, but it's interesting. That's Cecil, spurious. Uh, Cecil doesn't do that. He, he doesn't. He, he blows the kiss yeah. in full view and it seems I mean, it seems to me, I'm, I'm reading into his intentions here, I can't read his mind, but it seems he did it as a provocative gen yeah, gesture. Sure. He knew the two guys walking with him yeah, were Christians, yeah. and he knew what they would be thinking 
if they saw him do this. So he was trying to provoke an argument. He just didn't think the, the response would be as vehement as he got. But, but suppose he won the argument. Would he be permitted to uh, inform on his friends and have them arrested? I suppose he would be permitted to, but, but you know, he wouldn't. But he never did. He never did, right. And he, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and he wouldn't necessarily do it. Yeah. Um, see, the, the way the persecution was prosecuted by, by the Romans, it was, it, it was intermittent. That's it wasn't right. always intense. Right. It was sporadic. Because the, the Christians right. were actually good at their professional work, yeah, and so sure. they were valued. Yeah. And we needed people with these certain virtues in certain positions. And besides that, the Romans weren't really reproducing. So right. when you had Christians who were available to do the job and could do the job, uh, you know, you didn't want to be persecuting them. You wanted to be winning them over. Well, isn't that sort of like uh, the Nazis saying, you know, we're not really ready to gas the Jews because they run the bank. Uh, they know how to handle money. So we need them. I mean, that's really cynical and, and phony. Uh, and, and when you think of somebody like Justin Martyr yes. appealing to the emperor mm -hmm. you know, and, and saying, whatever you've got, we can perfect, we can consummate. Well, the guy's last name is Martyr. He didn't <laughs> succeed. He wasn't all that convincing with Marcus Aurelius. But when you think about it, all the, all the Christians we're talking about here, we're talking about Minucius Felix, we're talking about his friend Octavius, we're talking about Justin Martyr. They had started out their lives as pagans. Right, yeah. And as, as real believers, in the traditional religion, sure. okay? And, and, and they had started out as anti-Christian. They had attitude right. about Christianity. Right. Now, Justin overcame that because he saw Christians dying as martyrs. Yeah. Like then he said, oh, there's something more going on here. Right. Because they're, they're not only dying willingly, they're dying joyfully. Right, right. What, how, how does that happen? Right. So that made an impression on him, but it wasn't enough to make him a Christian. Right. What happened was he met a guy on the beach, he had a conversation, sure. the guy brought him along, you know? So there has to be this openness to friendship, even with the Justins of the world, before they become Justin Martyr. Well, what about the Sauls of the world? I mean, here's a guy bent on persecuting Christians. I, I don't know that he bumped into a friend who disabused him of that. What happened was he was zapped by grace. God unhorsed him. I, I, don't, I don't see any friendship uh, at work here. I, I'd say that that's an unusual circumstance, <laughs> and it, it's extraordinary. It's pretty by I, I, there were other key, friends that you know, came into that. I see things through biblical lenses, typically, and so I, I'm reminded of what our Lord says, love your enemies. He doesn't say don't have enemies. Yes. Right. You're going to have enemies, and you love them. He doesn't guarantee that if you love them, you're going to convert them. You know, like Lincoln said, what do I do with my enemies? I destroy them by making, my, making them my friends. Well, yeah, maybe sometimes, but not all the time, you've got the good thief who suddenly finds friendship before yeah. he breathes his yes. last, but the bad thief is blaspheming until the end. Yeah. You know, so obviously some neighbors were very unneighborly toward their Christian neighbors, yeah. but enough were to make 40% something rather consistent. Yes. And, and I think it's one of those social experiments that is almost demanded by the gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at how Jesus loved his enemies, and redeems some, but not all, yes. you know, and then his followers abandon him, but they come back and they discover an entirely new level of friendship. And, you know, the very fact that the book is entitled Friendship and the Fathers, you know, you talk about inequality. Well, fathers and sons are not equal. Therefore, what? They're not friends? No, I mean, I've heard Father Dave, you talked about your father before he died. 
as for years your best friend. Mm -hmm. I have that kind of thing with, with my firstborn son, all of my kids. But I do believe the gospel has, as Jason says in Acts, turned the world upside down, you know. Yeah. And so suddenly you realize that if you're a father and you're a son or you're a boss and you've got an employee but you've got Christ, and you share Christ with someone who doesn't find him yet, all of a sudden it's like all of the categories of classical philosophy for friendship have to be rethought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I liked your definition precisely because it seems to be the sum effect yeah. of that. Yeah, and in and, 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 and the particular case of Paul, I mean, yeah. Ananias is instructed to go forward in friendship right. when he really doesn't right. want to. Right. So yeah. I think I think that even in that circumstance, you know, you have the this this guidance by God to walk in the way of Christ to say. I'm going to call this guy yeah. friend. Yeah. One, one, one final piece of, of skepticism, that statistic, the 40%. If you start from zip, nothing, uh -huh. I mean, how difficult can it be to achieve 40%? <laughs> well, it gets difficult as time goes on. You know, it gets yeah. more difficult. But right. uh, we can see that the numbers were pretty phenomenal. Uh, yes. When you start with nothing, and, and really by the end of the Diocletian persecution, your numbers are such that you are, are seen as probably the plurality in religious terms in the Roman world, that you are the largest single religious group. This is it. And, uh, but but you know, Mike, Stark, if you, if it, you yeah. push that envelope yes. too far, you end up saying, you know, Constantine was really a bad thing. What a mistake it was to convert uh, the emperor uh, into a Christian and legalize the faith of Jesus Christ, because now we're going to lose the 40%. <laughs> well, I do think that the It changes the dynamic of it. You know, the, the statistic continued after Constantine, but Constantine didn't legalize Christianity as a gesture of goodwill. It, he was a pragmatist. He was a politician. Yeah. He had to yeah. because they were so you know, outnumbered, the pagans were at that point, yeah. that it was almost a social exigency to legalize this religion. But, and then but you basically know, his, his motives are utterly unimportant to me. If you're yeah, a exactly. Christian, you're grateful. Now right. they're not going to kill me. And that had been the prayer of the church for 250 right. years. The, they, they prayed for the peace of the church. Yeah. And finally, it had come. Yes. It, had come. it yeah. did bring new problems. And, sure. and some of the okay. problems were very big. Sure, yeah. You talked about that, that change in, <coughs> excuse me, in friendship that happens after that event. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't want to just lose sight that much of the, because the, the tagline is evangelization, how the early church, much of the evangelization took place because Christians were willing to reach out to somebody who was not like them yeah. yes. and share the beauty of the gospel. Right. And that was captivating. For Ordinary Christians. Yes. Because yes. a lot of these people were off limits to the clergy. Yeah. And the liturgy was private. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you, you share a little bit of the, this, the background, like people looking in on the inside or from the outside, inside, trying to figure out. Well, what private because it, publicly it was proscribed. Publicly it was proscribed. You ran the risk of extinction. Also, the Christians observed what, what we now call the discipline of the secret, where That's they, right. if you were not baptized, you were not admitted to the right, liturgy. Right. And, uh, and so, so they could only speculate about what was going on. They couldn't yeah. really know. And, and maybe we can pick up this topic on the other side, is that my concern is that is that the vast majority of Catholic Christians don't have those pagan friends. Mm -hmm. is, is, or where, where we, or pagan relationships, where are we meeting those people? Where are we engaging them? Uh, unfortunately, I think we, we separate ourselves from them in, and then evangelization of, of people who don't have faith is, is inhibited. So we'll be right back with more Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us.
Here at Franciscan, I think kind of the goal of like Christ-centered friendships is to hold the good of the other, challenge each other to good, whether it's going to Mass or praying the Rosary and just trying to get to heaven and become saints. I think it's really important when it comes to like friendship to eventually grow from being friends to being brothers, uh, especially for young men, just because uh, one of the things that we talk about for our household is accountability and helping each other grow in holiness. But in order to do that, you have to have a relationship with someone in order to call them on to holiness. Because you can't call someone on to holiness if you don't know who they are. If you don't know that they're falling short, uh, you have to call them on to holiness by knowing them. And that only happens if you have a relationship with them. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? A place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word, it's a discovery. Welcome back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, which we record in the Communication Arts Studio here at Franciscan University in Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and the equipment and our theology professors, Dr. Martin and Dr. Hahn and I are discussing friendship and the fathers with Mike Aquilina. Mike, one of the, the things I enjoyed about the book was you, you tell some stories about the, the church fathers, that the relationship that they had that were at times strained and difficult. <laughs> and and, and yeah. you really make the point that true authentic friendship tapes, takes work. It's yeah. not always easy. So maybe just speak a little bit to that. I think we can romanticize the lives of the saints and we can imagine that their friendships were, you know, just kind of the steady movement of plaster figures yeah. who have a gold band around their heads, you know, and, and that was not the case. And some of these friendships between the fathers were difficult, they were bumpy, they were rocky. Uh, I tell the story of Basil and Gregory, yeah. who were dear friends from their early adulthood. They went to school together, they were, they were classmates. I love the way they were college buddies, I love the way <laughs> yeah, you put that, yeah. Yeah, and so they were, they were very close from an early age and they shared a home, right? They, they prayed together and they studied together and they decided to go into monastic life together, to share an ascetical life. So this is a plan for yeah, going yeah. forward. Well, things happen, <laughs> right? Um, Gre Gre Gregory has to go home to help his father, who's a bishop, right? Uh, and, uh, and Basil himself becomes a bishop, right? Over time, uh, Gregory is forcibly ordained by his father, and Basil says, you go along with it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and Gregory, who's kind of meek and passive, and tends to, to want that kind of guidance at times, well, he goes along, and then later he resents it. Basil is a force of nature. He's a locomotive. You know, he's the guy who's very practical. He gets things done, right? And, uh, and this makes for a difficult friendship. And there's this pattern of, of events in their lives where, where Basil will, you know, Gregory won't know what to do. Basil will tell him what to do, and he'll go along with it, and then later on he'll regret it, and he'll resent it. And so this dynamic goes, out, goes on as long as Basil is alive, actually. He's the first to die. And then Gregory kind of makes peace with it afterwards wow. in his, uh, his funeral oration, which is one of the most beautiful biographies mm -hmm. and tributes in the ancient world. But it really does not spare Basil uh, yeah. his difficult the, the, the qualities, the you know, right, right. and the suffering that, that he brought about. It's a, it's a 
it's, it's kind of a, a heart-rending story in many ways, and yet it's inspiring at the same time. What you're saying is, what we're seeing is that, that friendship is invariably a risky investment. Yes. Mm. Not just with pagans, but even with Christians. Yes. You know, and I, and I think back to that previous segment, you know, I'd like to, I was holding back, I'd like to push back now, because I, I feel as though this is the single greatest need for Christians, Catholics especially. I mean, on the one hand, raising big families, fertility, must have been a massive contribution to the expansion of Christianity, especially when we know about infertility, abortion, yeah. all of the things that were practiced yeah. there in Rome. But the very fact that you have uh, the, the risk undertaken, you know, on the way to the beach. I'm reminded of uh, John Paul talking about the new evangelization. When St. John Paul was doing that, his good friend Rocco Butilione came here, remember, in the oh, early 90s. Oh, I do 90s. vividly. He was here for like two days. And it was the most stimulating intellectual conversation. At the end, I recall one of our students asking him, how can we advance the new evangelization as intellectuals? And he smiled in a winsome way, and he said, by befriending feminists, Marxists, atheists, and don't put your faith at risk, but these are more than just arguments to refute. When you enter into friendship, you're going to feel the force of what they believe and why or what they don't believe, but they're going to sense the respect. Yes. And I remember sensing that was like an urgent call. And, and, and in that same context, I remember taking a step out and you know, contacting a rabbi <laughs> whose writings I respected. Yeah. And he invited me over to his house wow. in Cincinnati over Christmas. Nice. And we had two or three hours. And I thanked him for this other work of his. I ended up helping him get it published by Oxford University Press. Wow. Rabbi Hanan Brichtel was dying at the time. And I ended, I, I ended up friends with his, his son Herschel and his widow then. And it's like, Wow, I, I really believe it's not going to work every time. It might no, not no. even work most times, no, no. but it's one of those investments that's really worth taking the risk on. You know, it's funny. I don't remember that at all. Uh, maybe at the time I dismissed it as a kind of sentimentalism. But what I do remember about that talk was his quoting Luigi Giussani, who quoted Jesus. If you give up everything for me, you get it all back one mm. hundredfold. And, and Botiglione mentioned friendship. The enrichment of your friends mm -hmm. uh, is infinite in the light of Christ. Yes. That, I think, is the key. That's the sine qua non. If, if your friendship is somehow grounded in this prior faith in Christ, then even if they hate Christ, His grace will somehow work its magic, yes. its medicine, and they may change. Yeah. It may take a while, though. Uh, Paulinus, whom we discussed earlier, uh, would never use the Latin word for friendship, amicitia. Right? Hmm. Instead of using that word, he used caritas. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Because, because this is what we're doing. It's not just this lesser love, yeah. it's this greater love, and it's always that greater love. So it has an evangelical angle all the time, because if, 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 if love means promoting the best yes. in the beloved, you want to give him the very best thing you've got. If that's Christ, then you're always uh, sort of on duty, Yes. right? I mean, Scott, you talk to the rabbi, but I think in the back of your mind is this aim you've got, and you've always had it. I want to bring him home to Christ. It was burning inside of me <laughs> in his kitchen. <laughs> and, and how could but uh, let me just say that you loved him for who he was. I mean, that's I, think, right. I think there's a way that we yeah. can make that, we, 
almost inauthentic. We're or, not instrumentalizing no, no, exactly. yes. love That's manipulative. That's important. Exactly, and I that's think that's important. a difference. And I thought the chances were one in a billion, <laughs> and it never happened. But no, but no, and that's just matter. it. I, people can tell if they're being taken advantage yeah, of, right. or, but, if, but if, there was authenticness You're making them a project. Exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. And I think that that was the difference between the early churches, is that they loved because they've been loved first, right? And then yeah. that they reach out to right. another individual. I, mean, I, I once had a student, a guy who, tell, who told me, you know, I, I'm dating this girl because she reminds me of the blessed mother. And I said, you know, that's not good enough. <laughs> I mean, do you like her? Yeah, Are you yeah. interested in her? Yes. I mean, that, that's sort of insulting to say I'm only interested in you because you remind me of Mary. Uh -huh. yes. well, what if she doesn't remind you of Mary? I mean, do you just dump her? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. instrumentalizing people. Yes. Or have, you know, I, I can remember when I was a college student and, um, and I would often encounter members of, um, of some of the evangelical groups that were on campus. Not all of them were this way, but some of them obviously were instrumentalizing friendship. It was, you know, Absolutely. friendship for the sake of, yep. right. of, of putting a notch in your gun, Absolutely. you know, right. bringing another convert in. And yeah. I, I remember I suddenly got a sense of this when a guy was getting frustrated with me because I was pushing back and he said, he said, he started talking about all the conversations that they had had about me when oh, I wasn't around, you're, you're I thought, whoa, <laughs> yeah, I am a group project, and yeah. I, I didn't like it. He lost his free coffee. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the only example on campuses, though, because, you know, when you think about uh, friendship and, and really how it backs itself into and begins to approximate fraternity, brotherhood, you know, I'm reminded of fraternities, mm -hmm. because you end up forming great friendships in fraternities sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, on the other hand, you discover that you know, the parties and the people who are invited to them and all of the, the I don't want to say grooming, but you get the point yeah. that, you know, you're recruiting people. But it is a very opportunistic enterprise. It might produce friendship, but you have in fraternities that same kind of manipulative, mm -hmm. at least frequently enough in my experience going back to the 70s. Yeah. So fr true friendship will set itself apart from that. Yeah. That's right. And, yeah. and it will be startling. True brotherhood will too. Maybe if we will, uh, the, the idea of true friendship, Boethius, you talked about uh, fair-weathered friends mm -hmm. and how one works. So maybe just uh, speak a little bit more to that. What does that look like to be a friend yeah. through the midst of Yeah, he of had a fair number of struggles. those. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, he, here's a guy who had reached really, not, not the pinnacle of power, but pretty close to it as a close advisor to the king, all right? Uh, this barbarian king who was ruling the Romans. And, uh, and so as a barbarian ruling the Romans, he started to get a little worried about uprising and, and people opposing him, started to get paranoid. As long as Boethius was close to the king, he was surrounded by friends all the time. Mm -hmm. People wishing him well, people giving him gifts, people taking him out, you know, that kind of thing. And then as soon as he lost the favor of the king, as soon as the king started to get suspicious of these Romans and what they might do to him to, to unseat him, Boethius started to lose the friends. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he's, he's, uh, he's tried, he's convicted, he's accused. Some of the men he thought were his friends were among his accusers. Right, yeah. And he couldn't believe this was happening. Yeah. And the friends just fell off. And he said that he was, he, he learned from philosophy herself, who's personified in his book. He learned from philosophy that he was better off in jail than he had right. been in the luxury of the court. Yeah. Because in jail, he knew that all the friends who were standing <laughs> by him were his true friends who were willing to risk their lives for him and their prestige for him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and before that, he had been a most unfortunate man
because he was surrounded by flatterers right. and they were not his true friends and they were not wishing him well and they were envying him right. and they were just waiting for the moment to bring him down. <laughs> yeah. You know, what you're describing reminds me of Washington, D.C. <laughs> because a number of our graduates have gone there, you know, mm -hmm. and gotten jobs and offices and it's conservative and so you would expect real friendship and yet, you know, just as Boethius in the court of the Ostrogoth king was highly favored and friends with lots of people until he wasn't. You also point out that there were, you know, he was a conspiratorialist, the king was, you know, yeah. because there were conspiracies. <laughs> yes, you know? yes. And, and so, you know, in the prison, he finds the friend, the true friend in philosophy, personified as you say, you know, but I, I think that's the experience of many conservatives, Christians, Catholics, in a highly politicized environment, even where you have apparently like-minded people, you've gotta be careful. You know, the other example that you cite is Gregory, one of my favorites, the Moralia, his commentary on Job, because here is Job afflicted in the opening chapters like nobody. And then you know, afflicted by his friends, yeah, right? And, and, the, and the friends of Job end up being, come, you know, Satan's little helpers. They yeah. become the ultimate Yeah, they accusers. torment him even more. Exactly. Right. The pain of and the, the body is nothing compared to the pain <laughs> sure, of Job's sure. soul. You know, I, I was thinking of Thomas More and the friendship he had with the king, mm. which, of course, the king quickly betrays because more crosses him. It's not just a matter of inconvenience. More becomes a threat. I've got to get rid of this guy. And then his, his last days spent in the tower, more really achieves a genuine freedom. He's able to write at length uh, this beautiful meditation on death. And, and he even prays uh, at the scaffold that, uh, you know, we go out as enemies, but I hope to find you again on the other side as friends. Yes, and, you know, I, I, I think that, that that's an interesting story there because what we see in Henry, what we see working in Henry is a desire to have the friendship back. That's right. Because right. More, more told him, I will not be a threat for you, I'll be silent. Yes. Silence wasn't enough. Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah. Henry wanted yeah. that love back. He wanted right. that approval. He yeah. wanted he wanted people to see that they were they were like two bodies with one soul. To right. take take a line right. from the fathers. Right. You yeah. know the risk that he wasn't willing to accept though was the fraternal correction. Yes. Oh yeah. And I, I think that's another aspect of friendship that is neglected. Uh, fraternal correction is not. I mean, it puts friendship at risk but it also validates a true friend. Yes. You know, it's not what Job's friends were doing. I mean, they would have passed a polygraph. They thought they were sincerely correcting him. <laughs> yeah. They were dead wrong and they were killing him in the process. But when you have someone who approaches you privately with respect yeah. and trust and those ingredients but, but of there, the reciprocal something, bond. I think you're right, and you mentioned that, I think Basil and, and that, that they challenged each other, but yeah. there's something vulnerable about that to, to make that risk that says, this friendship is strong enough that I'm willing to challenge your question. There's something actually right. beautiful when you can work through that, and yeah. I think you share some of the church fathers that are able to do that. Especially Ambrose and Augustine. You yeah. know, Ambrose says you, you have to, you know, correct them privately, as our Lord said, and then, right. and then with a, another friend, and then if, if you need to, you need to go to the church, right, yeah. At, if they're still not listening. And Augustine said that this is the first line of discipline in the church. Confession and uh, the action of the priest and the penance, that's later. Yeah. You know, we should be taking care of most of these problems within right. the context of friendship. Yeah. That was Augustine's teaching. Right. But among non-saints, fraternal correction doesn't often succeed, right? I mean, the guy who's being corrected, even if it's moved by love, resents it. Mm. I mean, maybe not openly, but privately. He's pretty annoyed. I'm Especially if it's coming from 
Especially if it's coming from someone like St. Jerome. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Who is grouchy all the time. I mean, his friendships were mostly literary. I mean, I don't think people could, have, could abide him in the flesh. He was so irascible. Those holy insults. <laughs> Up next, our panel, our guests will share their final thoughts. Friendship and the Fathers, please stay with us. I joined Daughters of Divine Mercy household, and that's basically a community of women that are centered around growing in holiness together. And I think that's a very foundational aspect of friendship in general, because everyone needs a community. We're all made for community. Um, and it, all of us are just authentically calling each other on to live in the spirit of the gospel together. I was drawn to Disciples of the Word because, you know, it's a household full of great guys, um, and they really push you to be a better person. You know, the brotherhood aspect of it is, you know, they love you and they care about you, and that's why they want you to be a better person. There is a place where education begins and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online. And welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. Uh, Regis, if you'd like to share your thoughts. Yeah, uh, Mike, thanks for writing the book. It's a wonderful book, and this, I think, has been a wonderful conversation about it. I'm, I'm astonished that you're able to have any friends at all if you write 50 books. <laughs> <laughs> but one of them is about friendship, okay? Uh, and I know you and Scott are great friends, and I, I count you as, as one of my friends, although I never see you. But uh, somebody once wrote that uh, when young people in Rome, this is before Constantine, uh, decided to become Christian, they made a discovery. And the discovery was that the center of their heart, their soul, their mind, their being, was no longer their family, the state, the emperor, the army, but Christ. He became the mainstay of, of their lives. In other words, they discovered themselves as persons, which as far as I know, was a term, a category, that did not exist in the pre-Christian world. I mean, if you were a person, you wore a mask. It was, it was persona or prosopone in, in Greek. You embodied some yes. emotion. But the discovery of the person was something that came about through Christian revelation. Also, the realization of creation. This is something given. I receive myself from another. Anyway, they were rooted in Christ, and that gave their self-possession, self-donation, a Christian edge, uh, an edge of grace, a glint of glory that probably made it easier for them to make friends with their non-Christian neighbors, even if they knew, this guy's trying to kill me. At least I might have enough space uh, to talk to him about, uh, about maybe uh, uh, his new his new car, uh, or uh, you know, what he's doing with his free time. Uh, we've got something that we can hang on to together that might keep his anger at bay, and that gives enough space for God uh, mm. to work, you know, the therapy of grace. So yeah, I think there's something to that. Amen. Uh, Scott, final thoughts? 
I like Tim O'Malley's endorsement. I think he was the one who described this as being non-romanticized. Mm. It's not an idealistic thing, but it is an ideal. And you're right, I mean, we've been friends for over 30 years, and so when I am reading this, I'm, I am also subjectively appreciating this in a, in a very w real way, because you've got the gift of friendship, not just with me, but countless others as well. But this ideal, I think, and again, plug your ears, I don't mean to embarrass <laughs> or flatter you, but this is revolutionary, or perhaps counter-revolutionary, because it's not just the way to evangelize, it's the way to be re-evangelized ourselves. You know, friendship is a two-way street. It's not just giving, it's, it's also receiving. But I think it's this, the supply line for the grace of ongoing conversion, the fraternal corrections, the challenges. I have a colleague who is extremely free in giving me fraternal corrections. Well, only one. And they're bracing. <laughs> well, extremely free, only one, thank God. But I mean, our friendship has been forged in that, and I try my best to give it to him. He's just harder to correct, you know. But I... I I'm reminded of Mary Aberstadt, who makes this, um, this analysis of faith and family and, and how they stand or fall together. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking now in terms of family and friendship that uh, the, the best thing we can do as married men is to raise big families and enter into deep friendship with our, our children as they become adults. On the other hand, I think the very notion of the church as God's family where it's not just imitia, you know, it's not just pagan friendship, it is, uh, it is caritas. Mm -hmm. um, you know, taking the risk of investing in the lives of other people, you know, whether they're like-minded or extremely unlike-minded. And I just think that this is probably the missing link uh, for the new evangelization. And as we started the show by saying, this is the one thing that most people need mm -hmm. as well. I mean, Catholics, devout Catholics, Absolutely are often devoid of friends. And so this, I think, is going to be one of the most important books you write. And I'm grateful that Emmaus Road and Proud <laughs> got to publish it, too. That's great. Good, thank you so much. Mike, your final thoughts. I really think that friendship was uh, the, the, most, the most visible manifestation of the Christian Revolution. Something had happened here, all right? And this is the way most people encountered it. They heard rumors about Christianity and what was going on behind closed doors. Those rumors weren't true. They weren't real. But they saw something in their neighbors who were Christians that they wanted. These people had happy families. These people had real relationships mm -hmm. with one another. Now later on in Christian history, we have St. John Chrysostom said, this is our vocation. We should just be doing this because we already within the church have sacramental communion with one another. He said, how is it that I look out on a congregation who don't even know one another, don't even know one another's names? And that's a real problem. If we're living in a neighborhood that is mostly nominally Christian, we don't know the name of our neighbors on either side, we don't know the names of the people in the house behind us, this is a problem, right? We need to forge friendships, you know, first with Christians and then outward from there, you know, we should be friends with everyone. We're, we're experiencing daily opportunities mm -hmm. for this when we go to work, mm -hmm. okay? I worked in the tech field for, for a long time. Many of my, 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 my neighbors in the cubicle farm uh, were not Christian, you know, we're, we're not practicing Christians anyway. So there was endless opportunity for this. The other thing is we have supernatural helps yeah. in doing this. We're living the life of Christ, so He's the one making the friends for us. Right. He's living in us. We have true communion with Him. But also, we have so many practical things like devotion to the guardian angels. 
which the early Christians had a strong sense of. You know, I can not only use my natural skills or abilities, but I, I can also call, call upon this neighbor in the next cubicle, her, you know, his or her uh, guardian angel's skills and abilities, you know, and powers. It's, it's an amazing thing that we have at our disposal. And we can get into people's lives and we can make a difference. We can be the ones who are, who are making a meal at the time of, the, of a death in the family who are offering a ride and all of the things that friends do. We can be recognizably friends and we can turn lives around. We, we can be the revolution Amen. today. Amen. Thank you so much for it. I appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about today's topic, we have this handout for you. Uh, the introduction from Mike's book, A Friendship and the Fathers. This handout is yours for simply uh, by going to online uh, faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on the screen momentarily. Uh, again, I want to thank you for this. Uh, I must say that from the very beginning when you, you quote the scripture and you say that Jesus says, um, I call you friends. That's really where I, I put everything else that I read in the light of that, is mm -hmm. that it is this relationship. And, and I must say that as I was actually in my prayer time, was focusing on the reality that all of his friends, all right, what, a, what an amazing thing you said that you wouldn't speak of friendship with God. And then the night before he dies, they all abandon him. And, and the, I mean, I've had some friends hurt me, right? Mm -hmm. The pain that there must have been with that. Yeah, I mean, we, we speak of the suffering that Jesus went through physically, of course. But he was, he was human and he was God, obviously. But his friends all abandoned him and he walked away. And, and with the exception of a few women and John and his mother, he died on that cross surrounded by people who hated him and despised him and made fun of him. And all of his friends mm. were gone. Yeah. But he still called them friends. That's right. He still called them yeah. friends. And that's, that, that's just what moved in my heart that, that he is Lord, he is Savior, he is Kyrios and his friend. And there's something about that that just really moved to my heart. So we want to pray that, that you know, first off, the friendship of Jesus, but you also reach out and, and discover friendships and bringing the friendship of, of the gospel to the people that you come in contact with. So the Lord pour out his blessing and his grace, fill you with his Holy Spirit, that you would know the friendship of God and share that with others. May the Lord bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Download a free handout on today's topic at faithandreason.com where you can also watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents. Or request the handout by emailing us at presents at franciscan.edu. Or reach us by phone for today's handout by calling 800-783-6447. That's 800 783-6447.